Welcome to Advanced Automation, a podcast by Calvary Robotics, where you'll find industry leaders and experts sharing their thoughts on the world of automation. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today. By way of introduction, just uh, uh, again, my name is Michael Marseglia. I'm the VP of uh, Business De- Sales and Business Development at Calvary Robotics. And today's discussion is part of an ongoing forward-looking journey that we're that we're all on, I think, uh, together. Uh, and we want to discuss the current trends, the future of automation and manufacturing with industry experts uh, that we that we invite in from time to time. Uh, today, we're featuring two of those, as you saw in the video, and that I'm happy to welcome back uh, very esteemed partners and guests and friends, uh, Mikhail and Jared. Uh, folks, uh, go ahead and introduce yourselves. So hello, thanks for having me. Uh, so my name is Michal, you saw me on the video. I'm the P3 product director from Stratasys. I'm an industrial engineer by education, but I started my way from a technical role. I was a software developer and I joined Stratasys um, three years ago and we acquired the company, um, DLP Technology in uh, San Francisco. I relocated there and now I'm responsible for that product, which is now uh, being sold worldwide by Stratasys. Excellent. Thank you, Miguel. And hi, I'm Jared Glover. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Capson Robotics. And uh, you already heard from me quite a bit in that video. But uh, just to recap, we provide software that gives robot arms more intelligence, 3D vision, motion planning. Uh, It's been in development for a long time. We've been in uh, business for nine years and uh, started doing some of the research on the technologies before that in my PhD at MIT. So uh, it's been a long time in progress, and we're really happy to have Calvary as a strong partner to help us bring it to market. Thanks, Jared. Yeah, and today, something I'd like to focus on, just remind everyone and everyone here that's joined us today that's part of manufacturing or automation in some some way, shape, or form. We understand that uh, you know the future of manufacturing, the technologies that drive and support it are evolving at a faster rate than ever before. I think we can all agree with that. I'll speak for everyone. Um, you know, in recent years, we've heard, seen, used, and evaluated many new technologies and approaching and approaches to manufacturing and automation. Some are commonly known by now familiar industry buzz terms, and that's usually how we first hear of something and then want to investigate further. You know, things in the past, like uh, names like cobots, uh, IoT, or Internet of Things, uh, Industry 4.0, which I think Mikhail mentioned in her and her uh, digital twin, 3D vision, AI, flexible feeding, 3D bin picking. Picky and additive manufacturing, of course, not to be left out. Um, you know, we're looking forward to addressing these and more in follow-up conversations. But today, we're going to focus on on uh, what Jared and Mikhail are presenting, and that would be three D bin picking and additive manufacturing. Uh, and if you've been in the industry at all, you can agree that both of those technologies and manufacturing methods, not only technologies, but methodologies, are evolving very quickly and have grown to play very crucial roles in many industries uh, that we're all in today. So whether you stop by our booth at Automate or you're just starting your automation journey, we hope this discussion enhances our view, or your view, and, the, and ours as well, into the future of manufacturing and automation. Uh, and lastly, if you have any questions or comments, please feel free to add them to the comments section. You know, and we'll do our best to address as many as possible at the end of our talk today and then, and then beyond that if you want to contact us independently. Um, and with that, uh, I guess I'd like to start uh, into a, a discussion here. I, I want to do, do want to make one comment and it's off script guys. <laughs> no questions that we've actually rehearsed. It's Jared, Jared, it's about something I just realized that you said in your, in the video, which is quite interesting. And it's a great comment. You said we can do, I'm going to read that because I wrote it down during the video. Uh, we can do a lot more than you think we can do. I love that comment uh, because I think that's something we talk to customers about every day. And I think that applies to you as well, Miguel. I'd like to see what, you know, what does that mean to you, Jared, that statement? Yeah, I mean, um, there's a lot of applications that, uh, you know, weren't possible a few years ago. For example, um, disentangling objects, right? You, you have a bin full of cluttered parts like hooks or springs or something, and they get entangled with each other. And uh, for the robot to be able to figure out how to pick them up and disentangle them, it's just not something anybody had, had thought was possible before. And, um, you know, we achieved that a few years ago. Um, that's one example, but there's a lot of other examples where, you know, it may not even be a pick and place application. It might be that, um, you know, you want to power wash an object, right? So how do you do that with 3d vision? You put the object in front of the robot on a turntable, or you put a camera on the robot arm and have it move around and scan in the object, 3d model the object. Um, and then, you know, motion planning software that plans a path to spray it off. So, 
um, you know, really the, the sky's kind of the limit in terms of what you can do to, to combine these different tools. You know, just imagine robots, you know, are now able to see in 3D and understand the shapes of everything and where things are positioned and what, you know, which objects are where, and then make, you know, pretty much arbitrary decisions uh, accordingly to, to do different tasks. Um, it still takes time and integration, but um, there's a lot of, of flexibility in how you combine these different core technologies. Perfect, Jared. That's uh, that's perfect. Thank you. And and Mikhail, what's that mean for you? Uh, you started out, you know, printing parts, right? And you know, printing. what else have you seen that's emerged from your technology that's that you know, makes it more robust and that you're offering something different than you were when you started out? Well, first, we don't know what we don't know. And when we come out with the technology, and that's what happened like a year and a half ago when we launched the Origin printer, we launched a printer and a bunch of validated materials with great mechanical properties. But then the customers kind of found out what to do with it. Uh, so they started adopting it in various segments, in aerospace, in automotive, in government, in education. And we were surprised to find out how they use the technology. So we kind of learned from our customers I have some examples that I can show to the camera later of different things that we are developing here in Stratasys, but these are all things that we are learning from our customers. And once we do that, we kind of produce an application together, and then we can scale it. We can scale it up. So we, it's, a, it's a journey for us and our customers. Very good. Yes, hey, Jared, thanks for that comment, because I think I'm going to make that into a t-shirt. <laughs> uh, very nice. important. I think that's I think we find all of us find that, uh, you know, the only way that we advance technology is when we 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 realize that we can do more than people think we can do or that even we think we can do. So it's a very mm -hmm. important attitude to have. So great, uh, great question. Great answers from both of you. Uh, let's start out, uh, Mikhail, with uh, for Stratasys part, you know, from concept, the final system at the show. You know, can you walk us through the evolution of that application? You know, what what, what drove that? Sure. So maybe first who we are and why we're doing this. So this is a DLP uh, technology, as I mentioned, and the differentiation is that we can reach injection molding quality, surface finish uh, accuracy. We have an open material platform and we have wonderful applications. And now we want to scale because if you look at the market, you see that um, uh, analysts say, you know, that the polymer 3D printing market has a CAGR of 23% in the next coming years, and that over 50% of it is going to be for manufacturing. So we want to be part of that and actually start to lead that polymer 3D printing um, transition into manufacturing. So taking this technology into manufacturing, we are running into various challenges, um, whether it's the materials that have to be adopted and tested and certified by the customers. Uh, we have to prove repeatability. We have to prove quality control. Uh, we have to reach the right accuracy. Uh, customers want to avoid the health and safety issues. So we want kind of a glove-free, uh, no touching uh, process. For that, automation is key. And we're focused on 3D printing. That's what we do best. So in order to give the full solution and automation to the customers, we're partnering. So in this case, we partnered with the Calvary Robotics uh, and also with the EcoClean uh, for uh, some of the post-process uh, equipment. And we show that the, the, the purpose of this uh, partnership was to demonstrate how P3 can scale into manufacturing in terms of hardware, material, service, and uh, software. Uh, and what you saw there in the video is the three origin, six origin printers and a robotic arm picking uh, build heads from those printers once they're finished printing putting them on a conveyor, which runs constantly through a post-processing uh, post uh, operation, which is washing, drying, curing, removing the parts from the build head. And then the robotic arms takes the empty build head and places it back into the printer. So this is like the full, uh, the full what I call a production cell solution that we were able to demonstrate together to prove that it's possible. Wonderful, and that's uh, and Mikhail, that it, the, important to add that those were all uh, processes that previously required a lot of manual intervention. 
as well, right? And possibly uh, or happen much more slowly with a lot less uh, organization and, uh, and, and not as good as a, a cadence to get you the throughput that you required for some of your customers as well. I'm imagining, I think uh, from our part as Calvary Robotics, we see applications very similar to this, uh, not only in the 3D or additive manufacturing, but in many, many areas of manufacturing where robots are, I'll say, tending different types of machine technologies uh, to, to either load or unload materials or move them around and keep the cadence going in, in manufacturing and, uh, and perhaps, you know, go on and, and allow people to have more, uh, more shifts and improve throughput and improve volumes of their manufacturing uh, materials. Uh, so something that we see quite often, and we were happy to be able to offer those services to, uh, to Stratasys. And I think it was a great, uh, great combination of technologies. So very good. Uh, Jared, uh, how about yourself? Uh, you know, referring to the automate show cell, you know, from concept to final system, you know, walk us through the evolution of that. Uh, how did that come about? Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, it was, it was basically designed to be uh, demonstration based on a project that we did together, medical packaging product at the height of the pandemic. Uh, there was a rush job and really uh, came together amazingly fast between us. Um, and it was, you know, picking these medical uh, consumables that were um, wrapped with rubber bands and uh, then picking them with a suction cup on a robot arm and packaging them in um, a small part of a box um, now it's evolved to package uh, three of those those uh, bundled products and then a fourth product as well on the actual assembly line, on the actual packaging line, in a very tight space. They all have to be lined up next to each other carefully. Um, in the demos at, at Automate, we didn't have the full packaging line, obviously, so we just showed picking from the bin, from the random bin, and then placing consistently in a chute that, that comes out of the cell. Um, and then the, the really cool addition that we made that I think was your idea, Mike, was, um, you know, throwing in some, uh, some little robot uh, squeeze toys that, um, you know, our, our system could recognize. And then if, if somebody presses a button on the outside of the cell, if a visitor press, presses a button, then the robot would switch and pick up that, uh, that toy and then, and then give it uh, to the visitor out of the chute. So that was a, a really cool idea and, and worked out really well, I thought. Yeah, Jared, that was a bit of uh, allowing you to show off a little bit in terms of capabilities. <laughs> I thought it was great myself, but uh, also quite practical, right? Uh, you know, if you get a, a case of, uh, if you have a bundle or, or, or a lot of products like that that come in a box, sometimes the things are mixed and there may be something that doesn't belong in there and uh, you're not uh, putting the wrong thing in a box uh, per se. So mm -hmm. it's a good feature to show off. Uh, so appreciate yeah, you guys sure. working on that. Um, you know, one thing that, that becomes obvious as you're talking about both your solutions, both technologies, is the, the your ability, both both technologies, to deal with uh, high variability, right? Uh, for yourself, Mikhail, that means that you can print virtually anything that fits in that in that machine, right? Uh, in, in any of your systems within the envelope given. And Jarek, for you, or virtually anything that, that appears before you in a mix, you're able to pick it as well. So what does that mean for customers for you, uh, Jarek? Um, yeah, I mean, customers that we talk to never want the same thing, right? So, um, you know, we'll be talking about picking auto parts that are in cardboard boxes with dividers one day. And then the next day we're talking about, you know, picking packages of chicken or something. And um, there's just so many different picking jobs out there. Uh, and then, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, there's there's more than just picking. There's you know, inspection tasks and scanning and, and uh, you know, post-processing, finishing tasks, all, all sorts of different manipulation tasks, assemblies, machine tending. So the variety is just limitless in manufacturing. And, uh, you know, so there's, there's, there's always a different request. And, you know, we've designed our software from day one to be very general purpose and, and built in, in um, you know, le different levels. So at the highest level, we have the applications you know, the assembly and packaging and, and picking pick and place applications and so on in our software. Then we have under that all the core uh, vision and motion planning libraries that are very general uh, and able to handle these different tasks at the higher level. And then even under that, we've written software that is uh, all accelerated with GPU programming, CUDA on NVIDIA chips, uh, which is what all modern, modern AI is based on basically. And uh, it's all accelerated. So the, the matrix math computations, the machine learning and optimization, 
we all have that at the lowest level. It's all been highly optimized, which is why our system is fast and general. Excellent. Yeah, I'm also thinking of uh, small changes in the product itself that you're picking. If you have, you can adapt quickly to a change in slight change in dimensions or geometry, or maybe even wrapping, uh, you know, without having to retool, let's say hard tooling and take a long time to, to have a, a new solution come up or to modify the solution. Uh, no, that that means a lot. Time to market, time to react quickly for a customer to any small changes. Or previously, it was a, a much longer journey, much more expensive one as well. So yeah, exactly. The, and that's that. that's just kind of the nature of of bin picking cells in general, right? The idea is that you're using a very flexible robot arm um, with one or maybe a couple of different end effectors that can handle a variety of of the products. And so just by the nature of how the, the cell is designed, it's flexible. And Mikhail, for you as well, I mean, you know, you can print virtually anything, but I'm sure, you know, if, if this was a molded product, for example, if you're molding products, you know, what, what's that huge advantage you have over, over something that's molded? Um, well, first of all, someone, something that is like molded and someone to do a prototype and production has many stages. I mean, it starts from prototyping, right. then it goes to bridge production, then it goes to small series, then it goes to full mass production. And Stratasys kind of um, has the right technology for the different phases or for the different uh, uh, stages in the journey of the customer. So uh, I can, it's not one size fits all. Customers want for different applications, different mechanical properties, uh, different sizes, uh, different um, different post-processing requirements, different uh, certifications, different regulations. So when you come to uh, sell some solution like this, actually you're not selling a technology, you're selling a, a part, or you're selling a, you're selling the finished part or the pipe especially in production, you're kind of selling an end use part to the customer. And he doesn't care which technology is standing behind it, which software is standing behind it. That's all of kind of like in the background. He just cares that he gets uh, something that fulfills his requirements. I can share some examples of um, beautiful things that we're doing in a, um, uh, end use parts in a Polyjet, for example. Polyjet is a different technology, not the one that I, I've shown here. But uh, it has the, the, the special thing about it is that it has multicolors, transparencies, gradients, and it's mainly used for, for prototyping, but also for end use parts of a fashion, of a, um, of a medical modeling. So I brought a few things that I can share with you. Uh, for sure, example, this do. is a, yeah, this is the Alexander McQueen shoe. And you can see, this is like an, a part that, a shoe that is, sold in stores and you can see here this part is the printed part i guess you can see it on the camera uh, another example is this bag or purse um, that is also an end use part and you can see the different uh the textures the special textures and the different the special colors on it um here is a denture so of course uh this is something that is also an end use part that has completely different requirements you have to get a, a FDA approvals, uh, different kind of regulations and standards. Uh, here is an example of a collectible. So you can see that and the way it looks inside. So this is, this is beautiful and very special in that technology. You can see like hyper-realistic parts. Somebody that wants to prototype something or wants to demonstrate something. So you can see that this is actually printed. You can't eat it. Um, and with DLP, with DLP, one example, one of our special customers is the Echo that produces the shoes. So they produce uh, molds uh, with our technology, and then they, uh, the molds are used to create the midsoles for, for these shoes. So these are shoes that are created, um, created with the molds that are printed with our technology. So each mold like that can go through 2,000 uh, shots. So different customers, different applications, and different requirements. Um, it's not one size fits all. Very true. True words are never spoken. <laughs> um, yeah, mm -hmm. and then the final solution. I like the fact that you were able to, uh, you know, customize it for it, right down to the individual, right? For in terms of the the shoes, uh, the markings on the shoes. Um, uh, that is uh, another emerging uh, market for a lot of manufacturers, right? To, to personalize and customize uh, products directly for individuals. Uh, that's excellent. Um, 
in terms of this solution, going back back to this, did, did for I'll start with Jared for this one. Jared, did this? Uh, I'm, I already know a little bit of the answer to this, but in you know in other applications of this, did this this come directly? Do you do you usually get these bin picking applications directly from a customer need? Uh, the, the need for multiple cells directly from a customer, or is this is something that you guys have, have pushed and marketed as uh, and a solution that you were uh, that you were had imagined would be important? Uh, it was t entirely from the market, from customers. So uh, when we started, um, you know, we were just uh, you know looking at applications for three D vision software based on some research I'd done at MIT. Before that, um, I maybe had I think I had heard of bin picking, but I uh, certainly wasn't looking to solve that problem. But we just keep hearing it again and again when we started talking to integrators and and uh, manufacturers and industry and. Uh, you know, it just, it just seemed like a natural fit for the kind of software that we had. And, um, we, we ended up building quite a bit on that, that basic software and actually rewriting the software we had originally, uh, to make it better and more general. But, um, but at the end of the day, it was a, a natural fit for the kinds of skills that we have as a company, as a software company, uh, for, for handling you know, the combination of vision and motion planning with a, with a solid foundation in uh, 3d geometry. Uh, being able to do these more complicated tasks was really a good fit for our skill set. Mike, I think we lost your audio. Sorry. <laughs> so what, what do you think about the penetration into mainstream manufacturing for 3D printing? Meaning, you know, not just uh, necessarily off to the side, low volume, but something in mainstream, higher volume manufacturing. Um. Well, 3D printing was kind of like a promise in the 80s, uh, and it did not materialize. And I'm, I'm thinking about it a lot. Why did it not materialize? What, what are the barriers? And um, I do see that there is, we experience success with production applications uh, that actually use our technology for production for small series for end use parts. Um, so, um, so, so when looking at, at those barriers, we see that the customers, first of all, need to get maturity. They need to trust the material. They want to know that it will age properly, that it would last after being 10 years out there in the field. Uh, they want to make sure that their operators are safe, you know, that um, you don't want to get a resin dripping in the, in the production floor. So the acceptance is kind of difficult. What we do about it is actually work with the customers and find out what kind of regulations they need, what kind of certifications they need. Uh, and we develop the, um, the software that supports the whole operation to be integrated into their uh, systems of record. So when you want to put a, a printer in a production floor, it has to behave like one of those, of those machines that are used for production. So, so uh, the hardware has to integrate, the software has to integrate, they're using their ERP system, uh, like maybe SAP, maybe they're using a MES of Siemens, maybe a PLM of Siemens, maybe they're using CATIA, whatever they're using, the BI dashboards, you have to integrate to all of that. Um, so this is this is what we're working on. We're working on, on making the acceptance easier, making the adoption easier, and we do see uh, progress in terms of uh, software, uh, hardware, and uh, material properties that are improving over the years to help this uh, adoption. Thanks, Michael. That's a great view of what's coming um, and what's currently happening. Uh, very good. Uh, Jared, how about you? Uh, how is your software caps and pick evolving right now for 3D bit picking in the marketplace? I know that uh, you started out, uh, it was a much uh, much more user-involved process uh, and uh, maybe required more expertise. I think you've been evolving. That's What does that look like now? Yeah, you're exactly right. We're, we're spending a lot of time right now uh, improving our usability and user interface so that anybody can program it. That's the ultimate goal here. So um, we already have something called an action script language, which is you know, just a basic um, you know, blocks-like programming environment, scripting environment, really, um, to, to get the robot to be taught to do these different tasks with different objects and different uh, setups and configurations. Um, and we're trying to make that as intuitive and easy as, as possible. So, uh, you know, we were really happy to come up and start training your guys uh, recently and, and how to how to operate in, and program in our system. And uh, we're just going to keep improving it and make it easier and easier as time goes on. 
great from what I understand that uh, quite well. Uh, yeah, our guys were anxious to get their hands on it and uh, hopefully, uh, you know, actually it would be good to get some good feedback from them in, in terms of a user experience as well. And uh, uh, Mikhail, in your, in your experience, uh, you mentioned uh, Industry 4.0 uh, highlights. You know, what, is the, what does that look like in the Stratasys world? Is that, you know, are the analytics used? Are they proprietary or status to Stratasys or is it third party? How does that work? Well, we have our basic platform, which is called GrabCAD, uh, but we're a part of a complete workflow. So we do the print preparation. We have our analytics, we have our connectivity to the production floor systems, but there is a complete workflow before us and after us. So if, for example, you're designing something, uh, the designer is working in a design software, the engineer works in some engineering software and creates kind of the design intent in that and all the and all the properties and the thermal heating and all, all the mechanical properties that they want to have for that part and only once it's ready we need to adjust it to a to three three we call it dfam so so designed for three, for additive manufacturing and only at that point once it's designed for that it goes through our software for print preparation making the right orientation the right nest the right placement how do you want to place those parts on the on the plate um, and also the slicing. And the way it works, we, uh, we project, our software kind of projects one slice at a time, and we create that slice of a material, of cured material, uh, polymer, of the part. And eventually it builds, the, the part is being built one slice after the other. So this is, this is the, the role of our software. But because we live in an ecosystem and we have to integrate to everything, so of course we want traceability. So we're collecting data. We want to enable our customers to do audits. We want to enable them to do recalls. So for that, you need the digital thread. You need to know who touched which part using which resin at which time so that you can find anomalies, so that you can de detect issues that are going wrong. And we are working on SDKs and Industry 4.0 APIs to integrate to the customer systems of record. And in addition, of course, we're working on our software intelligence because the software can be very intelligent, but you start from just collecting the data. Then you want to detect anomalies, so you want to alert maybe the user. But then you need a really smart user to look at those alerts and understand what to do with them. So you're actually asking the software more. You're asking the software to uh, predict for you what is going to happen. And then finally, the very intelligent software would automate your decisions. So this depends also on the autonomy that you give the software. Maybe you don't trust the software at first. You want to fine tune it. You want to, to, uh, to build some kind of relationship with the software. But eventually, you give uh, the software the autonomy to make the decisions for you. Because our target at the end is not the software. It's for the customer to come in the morning and find the perfect part that is printed. And then maybe behind the scenes, you could get a report that says, while you were sleeping, uh, we did all of that, corrections and analysis, and made it just perfect for you because it wouldn't just be perfect like that. So that's the role of the software for us and of the industry 4.0 standards for us. It sounds like you've taken that quite quite a bit farther than I would have expected in, in your answer. I wasn't, I was surprised to say the least. Excellent. Um, and one question I have for you. So what does it mean when you say in a 3D system, when it adjusts or make adjustments for you, what type of adjustments would it make? What type of feedback does it have to make those type, the types of adjustments you're talking about? Well, let's say that you want, that you detect there is some kind of a leakage or you detect that the part is falling off the build head or you detect that the build head needs maintenance some kind of maintenance site, or you detect that the temperature is too high or too low, you can do something about it. You can make the print slower. You can stop the print. You can tell the, the user, maybe you want to take a decision at this point. Um, you can lower the temperature. You can put the fan on. I mean, so there are many actions you can do, but in order to be able to do something, you first need to collect all the data. So our software aims to start with collecting the data and we're not trying to do everything on our own. So we're not an AI company, but AI is becoming very popular in manufacturing in general. And we will be partnering with the right uh, partners in order to uh, use the right software intelligence to optimize the parts. Very good, thank you. Uh, Jared, for you, uh, you know, Mako closed with, with mentioning AI once again. What is, what is the, 
I'll say the uh, influence of AI on your, on your solution and maybe in the future and, and other applications that you have coming up that you'd be applying your, your technology to? So when I think about AI, I don't just think about large language models and the generative stuff that people are so excited about now, which is very cool. Um, but I think back to, you know, even the computers that beat uh, Gary Kasparov, the world champion in chess back in the 90s, and uh, all the, the different techniques that we built up in the AI community over the last 30 or 40 years, if not longer, um, that involve, you know, combination of machine learning and uh, classical optimization and ge geometric algorithms and so on. Um, and it's really about combining all those tools to achieve the best result, um, you know, without having a massive computer cluster that costs $100 million to run uh, to train these large uh, language model type systems. So, you know, if you really want to have affordable systems that uh, you can use in, in industry and in, in manufacturing, you know, you, you want to have things that uh, combine all the best tools that are uh, efficient and, and can, can get the job done. Thanks, Jerry. Yeah, I think for our part, uh, you know, we've run across that in almost every aspect of, of manufacturing right now. Of, uh, everything that we're integrating right now has some, uh, is offering some knowledge-based uh, aspects to it, not necessarily the, to the extent, Jared, that you just described, um, but uh, everyone has some little bit of sprinkling of that content in it. Uh, and uh, we're excited to embrace it. We have a lot of uh, great talent here at Calvary that's uh, that's very excited about that as well, and uh, very open to a lot of the, of the newer things coming at us. And we're excited to see what's coming soon. Uh, and that, uh, you know, so right around the corner. And on that note, I'd like to ask uh, both of you, we can start with Mikhail again, um, you know, what, what's next, you know, five years out for Stratasys? What do you see evolving or advancing the, that's, not, that's not quite here today? Um, so, our focus is obviously 3D printing, but I think what what we understand, what we realize is that we, when we go to production floors, we're just a small part of the process. So moving forward on the hardware front, we want a glove-free operation. We don't, we don't want the operator to come and have to deal too much with, with the printer. On the software front, I mentioned the intelligence that we want just the, the solution to, to be done for us. We don't want the operator to have to make smart, a really smart person to sit there and look at dashboards and make decisions. On the material front, we want to develop very unique differentiated materials because the materials are key here because they unlock the applications for us. Uh, on the application front, we want to identify those killer applications working with our partners. So I think what is, com what is like in common for all of these is uh, like collaborations and uh, partnerships. Uh, we focus on what we're good at. We partner with uh, partners like uh, Cavalry Robotics. We partner with uh, Siemens um, and Octon and Link 3D for software. We, we partner with Henkel and BASF uh, and Evonik for, uh, for materials. And we partner with our strategic customers for, for the applications. So I would say like uh, we are part we are part of a big ecosystem, and moving forward we are going to put a focus on all of these pillars: hardware, software, materials, and service, uh, and and partner in order to give the full solution uh, uh, for the customer. Thank you, Mikael. And Jared, how, how about yourself? What do you see? You know five years out for, for Capson. I know that you're venturing out into different types of applications. Your technology is applicable across the board to many different industries. Uh, what do you see in the next five years that you, that's coming at you that you'd be addressing? Um, yeah, I think definitely more, more uh, applications, different types of manipulations and, and so on. Um, but the big one, the big trend that uh, we've already started doing some work in, but I think it's gonna continue in a much bigger way is mobility. So putting robot arms on mobile robots and, you know, that gives them the flexibility to drive around, do tasks at multiple stations and in a factory or for transporting goods in a warehouse. Uh, we've already done some work, for example, picking uh, totes off of flow racks, stacking, destacking, transporting them, putting them somewhere else. You could use that to build pallets or break down pallets, so on. Uh, so totes, boxes, big objects like that, we've already started doing some work with. Uh, but I think, you know, one thing that we're going to we're going to start doing pretty soon is uh, 
you know, applying that to all sorts of different ob objects. And so you just have a mobile robot, you know, mobile arm that's driving around and picking, uh, you know, doing order fulfillment, driving around, picking objects and a uh, wide variety of objects with the same robot. That's probably the biggest challenge, but uh, picking a wide variety, thousands of different objects with the same robot, driving them around and uh, transporting and doing pick and place jobs at the same time. So thank you, Jared. I think, uh, you know, what I'm hearing from, from both of you, and I can actually say that for, my, for myself as well as an integrator, and what we see most often is customers more and more looking for minimal intervention in any type of an operation, right? Michael, to your point, uh, you know, hands off, you know, gloves on, uh, do, you know, smallest amount of, of intervention. Uh, mean time between failures, very important. Uh, mean time to recover, equally important, right? To keep production and manufacturing moving uh, while addressing any anomaly that might come up or any slight change that needs to be made. Uh, those are things that we see and we face every single day and we have, uh, and we, and we figure out solutions for. Uh, you know, that we, you know, in our industry, uh, you know, not, not necessarily having a specific product, but very often it's a custom total turnkey systems integration. Uh, doing that at a system scale is actually a, quite, quite a challenge. And it's something that we, uh, that we work very hard at. Uh, you know, delivering systems that uh, are very high in terms of operating efficiency and uh, and low mean time to recover and, uh, and and then very very durable and uh, that lasts a long time. To that's to Miguel's point, to what she mentioned earlier, what manufacturers are looking for. And then, you know, in this future market, uh, what we're seeing uh, currently and in the future, I don't see it changing much. Even with the lowest unemployment rate we've been enjoying in a long time there still are very, very many open positions in manufacturing uh, that can't be filled and maybe a high turnover because of the types of jobs that are available, but repetitive jobs that I think uh, Jared addresses very, very nicely um, with, his, uh, with his technology. Uh, we'll see more and more of that. Uh, customers are, are fighting that. Uh, and, you know, people want to be more fulfilled with the jobs that they do every day. Uh, and, you know, loading a specific object to a specific box uh, for eight hours is just not something people enjoy doing. And uh, robots don't mind. Uh, and neither do does vision or the uh, application of technology that we're developing here together. Um, so we're uh, we're addressing all those applications as we go forward, and I don't see much of that changing. There's just going to be more of that, you know, uh, automating that that the few things left in a factory that are not automated. Um, we see that every single day, and I think uh, both of these guests today are addressing that, and as well as we, uh, you know, together uh, partnering with them and with others like them, um, and we uh, we enjoy doing that. So uh, that said. Um, What's uh, what's next on the horizon here for Stratus as makeup and in the next uh, let's say in the in the near term with uh, with the automating uh, the custom automation for for your customers? So we've already automated um, the post processing. Now we want to automate uh, the printing itself. We want to continue to print so that there is automatic resin feeding, so that uh, the part is removed automatically and fed into the post processing. And eventually, we want to remove all those touch points and replace them with autom automatic, uh, an automatic production cell uh, to have maybe not lights out operation, but to have a controlled, repeatable workflow without hazard to the, to the employees. Um, again, materials are key here, and we see very, uh, a very big uh, leap in uh, pro progress in uh, the mechanical properties of the materials that we can reach today with 3D printing, uh, also thermosets, not just uh, thermoplastics. And, um, um, and we see materials, very exotic materials like a uh, Henkel 3955 that was developed on the origin printer that can reach 300 degrees Celsius without releasing any toxic gas and has a ULA 94V0 and blue card certificate. And we see a material that has like a 230 percent elongation at break. So very exotic materials and we're trying always to stretch the limits. So this is our focus and this is the horizon to kind of stretch the limits and find this unique material that will differentiate us and unlock the new applications for us. And um, I think there is a big uh, future for Stratasys in manufacturing. I think we will be leading that uh, transformation into manufacturing and 3D printing. And if anybody's uh, following up on the news, you can see that uh, also other players in the market uh, today kind of uh, want to take part in the Stratasys journey. Thanks, Mikhail. As do we. We're uh, pleased to be partnered with you and look forward to a, a long, long, good relationship with Stratasys. It's a very good, uh, very bright future. Uh, interesting, uh, some very important needs for, for the world, for manufacturing, 
uh, for the economies of all countries. Uh, so thank you. Um, I do, uh, do have a couple of questions that have come in. Actually, one question that came in from, uh, from, from one of our viewers, so I'm happy to address that now to, for myself and for, for, for three of us, actually. Um, someone wrote, uh, I think Carlos wrote, what potential challenges do you foresee in the widespread adopt adoption of automation in manufacturing in the US and what would be your solution? Let's start with the challenges. Um Go ahead, Michael. Like, asking about, yeah, you're asking about the, the challenges that we see, but specifically in the U.S. or? In, in anywhere, widespread adaptation of automation. Yes, in manufacturing in the U.S. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, I, I don't know if this is a special to the U.S., but I think most of the barriers that we run into, it's a, around, a, around material and around trusting a new, trusting a new, uh, a new uh, production solution. And I think it's the same with any new production solution. It's not because it's it's not personal. It's not because it's 3D printing, but because it's we're bringing something that they are no. Um, so things have to uh, get uh, certified. The certification, for example, for aerospace or FDA, you can imagine it it can cost millions of uh, dollars for one part for one for one workflow. So this is a big uh, a big barrier for us. Uh, so we have to build that uh, to build those certifications to learn about the requirements of these uh, specific markets and to uh, and it and it takes time and it takes money to to enable it. Um, but I think the special thing that helps us is all those advantages that we bring to the table. So with three D printing, you have a very flexible design freedom, freedom of design. You can design geometries that you cannot do with injection molding or CNC. Uh, you're not so dependent on supply chain issues. So that helps us as well. In COVID, it was an extreme uh, a push for us, you know, that you can just print your prototypes or production parts in-house. Um, customers are happy that they don't have to share their IP. They don't have to outsource, for example, to send it to another country uh, to have it prototyped for them. So you can have those fast iterations. So you design something, and then in the morning, you can hold it in your hand. You can hold it, and it becomes reality after one night and you can put it in the hand of decision makers so that the time to market here, I think is key and where the market is going with those rapid iterations, uh, expectation for a faster, faster uh, production processes. I think this, is, this works for us. The thing that we have to understand is where our borders is, uh, where our borders are. Because when you go to replace some kind of injection molding, injection molding makes sense when you have time to produce a mold, when it makes sense, but because you want to produce millions of parts. But let's say that you want to produce small series of a, a hundred thousand parts. This is where we can help the customers or even those that are producing injection modes uh, start with something, start with additive manufacturing and then scale into those millions. Uh, so th these are the challenges, but this is how I think we will overcome them. Thank you, Mikhail. What about you, Jared? Same question. Uh, yeah. What potential challenges do you proceed? It's similar, I think. Uh, it's it's the flexibility that's really the hard part, right? So uh, every manufacturing operation is different, right? Sometimes you're, uh, I mean, lots of different objects to pick, obviously, but sometimes you're uh, picking and you're just placing something on a conveyor belt, which is not too hard. And sometimes you're picking it and you're putting it in some very, very uh, tight fixture in, in a specific orientation with a tolerance of, of uh, you know, less than a millimeter on each side and, and and then you have to inspect it. And then if it's not correct, you have to pick it up and try again. And there's just all sorts of complexity and, and, and variation in the different manipulation tasks that are out there, all sorts of different machines that need to be tended and assembly tasks. And uh, you know, so that's why we focus so much on designing our software in such a general way so that you can apply it to all these different problems, but you still have work um, just on the hardware side and the design side to figure out what kind of robot arm and what end effector you need and, and putting all the pieces together. Um, and so that that's really the, the biggest challenge in terms of mass adoption. But the better tools get, um, you know, on the software side that we're providing to make it general and easy to use and the better you know tools we get for end effector design and, and so on, um, you know, that that's just going to become more and more efficient. 
Thanks, Jared. Yeah, and for my part, I'm going to have <laughs> quite a few opinions on this, but I think uh, what's what I've seen, okay, very, very simply, uh, COVID played a huge part in this, of course, but I think manufacturing was going there anyways, uh, but it was accelerated by COVID and by the uh, the fact that we couldn't be in the workplace, for, workforce was, uh, was barred from being in the workplace. Uh, we had to distance ourselves, were less people available. And then very few people went back to work and back into the jobs that uh, that had been vacated during that time. So in a potential challenges, do you foresee in widespread adaptation of automation? There's no issue with widespread adaptation. I think there's a great desire that was brought around about simply by COVID. Uh, and then, you know, the, the years and the months and years that follow, um, the desire is there, the intent is there. Uh, the understanding of what uh, what someone might be asking for that uh, maybe hasn't previously automated, that's the challenge uh, to help them through that process. And uh, and the other thing is to, you know, whatever uh, solution that we all collectively come up with for uh, together for these manufacturers, uh, that it's not overwhelming to them, that it's something that they can actually operate, uh, own and enjoy and and profit from and, and allow their businesses to, to move forward with what we actually provide for them and not cause more difficulty than they had before. Um, so definitely selling a solution that's that's benefits the person, the person, the the, the uh, company, uh, the manufacturer and one that they can sustain, uh, that they can maintain, that they can operate and uh, ease of operation. Um, uh, and then uh, something that's you know, long term for them that, uh, that helps them on their journey and continues to help them to grow. I think that's really it. So the solution basically is to give them something that uh, that's appropriate for what the, what their needs are and that they can support. Um, and then, you know, uh, what uh, Michael and, and uh, Jared have, have stated is only supports that and only plays into that. So that's uh, that's something that we're very much dedicated to here at Calvary and that we're sensitive to. And we can understand during conversations with customers uh, what they're really looking for. Uh, so that's my take on that. Um, but hey, if there, I don't see any other questions at the moment. If there are some, um, you know, feel free to just jump in anytime. Um, right now, I do have a couple of other questions for for uh, Jared and for Mikael. Um, I think uh, you know, early on, I, I'd like to understand. Uh, I'll start with Jared. Jared, what you know, in terms of specific industries, who were your early adopters? Like, what industry would have been your early adopters for your technology for what you were trying to to develop? Uh, small metal parts manufacturing, that was kind of the, the key entry point for us. So our first installation was um, a wire and spring manufacturer here in Pittsburgh and uh, was picking hooks out of bins. It was a part of a larger assembly tasks where the hooks had to be picked and grasped in a certain way and inserted into a press that flattens one end and then they get assembled with a spring later on. But, um, but yeah, small small parts are, are something that, um, you know, there's a lot of trouble, uh, like there is in all manufacturing, but um, especially with those smaller manufacturers, a lot of trouble keeping workers, especially doing those very tedious jobs, uh, sticking their hands right next to big presses and, and not flinching, right? <laughs> um, so there's a large desire to automate those kind of tasks. And uh, it was difficult to automate them with, um, the tools that were, that were out there at the time, not just the disentangling part, but the complexity of the objects, the bin picking nature of the task, obviously. Um, there they really hadn't been a lot of solutions for companies like that previously. So that's where we got our initial traction. Uh, but then fairly quickly after that, we started working with you guys and started you know, getting uh, some traction on the medical side. And that's been continuing ever since. I would say medical is probably our biggest one now. Excellent. It's good to know. Thanks, Jared. And Mikhail, yeah. what were your early adapters? What industry would have been for you the, the first one that said, yes, we want to do this. This is a, this is a great solution for us. Uh, it was very, very segmented. So I think our number one was automotive, but, uh, but also aerospace and government and service bureaus that do all kinds of things and uh, also education because we are an open material platform. So once you're an open material um, in education or when you're developing some, something on our technology, you want that. I mean, you want to be able to fine tune and optimize the material that you're developing or your part uh, to be just perfect for your uh, process. Uh, so the open material platform was like uh, appealing to some types of customers. But then we were surprised at some of the others, like for example, suddenly we saw that companies that produce windows are interested and we have like multiple customers that produce windows and they produce and they they um they print the clamps for the windows uh so things that were surprising for us um 
um, different kinds of manufacturing aids. Um, for example, we have we have a customer Valiant called Valiant. Uh, this is a customer in Canada, and they um, uh, produce manufacturing aids for the automotive sector. So uh, they they produce uh, handles and frames uh, for tools that are used for producing uh, automotive uh, and parts that are used the the cars of the of the of the car the doors of the cars. Uh, so I think automotive was the the first one, but then like various other ones that have to do with sensor flows, with brackets, with housings, with clamps, with seals and gaskets. You know, with our customers, they're using many for seals and gaskets and things like that. So these were the early adopters. And from all of that, we have to now recognize what is the true uh, potential here. And then when we find those success stories, we have to, uh, to replicate them. Very good. That actually leads into my next question. And I'll start with you, Jared, again. That's, a, that's very good. Um, you know, what would you say? So you, you mentioned the early industries, right? The small parts manufacturers and then, you know, medical is definitely a great, great spot for kitting and packaging for yourself. Uh, you know, what industries aren't you in that you think would be benefit from, from your technology that you'd really like to break into? What would be, what's, what's poised to break up open next for you? Um, I think logistics, we're starting to get a little bit into logistics, like I mentioned before, mobile robots that are moving totes around and so on. Um, but I think there's a lot more opportunity in logistics that uh, is untapped right now. And I, I mentioned that earlier, you know, having mobile robots drive around and pick thousands of different products, order fulfillment, that sort of thing. Uh, but I think that's really just at the, you know, industry wide, not just for us, but industry wide, that's really um, not widely adopted yet by anybody. And and uh, will be soon. Very good. Mikhail, what, what about you? You mentioned your, you know, your breakthrough industry being automotive. Uh, what, uh, what industries aren't you in that you think of benefit from and that you'd really love to break into? Well, still, it could be in automotive, but maybe different kinds of parts. Where I think I have a good potential to, to start and scale is things that maybe are not mission critical. Because when you want to try something new, you probably don't put it under the hood or you don't put it in mission critical uh, uh, components. So an example could be interiors, like interiors for uh, automotive and interiors for uh, aerospace. I think there is a lot of potential for uh, medical appliances, like medical tools. Uh, we have an example of like a cover of an endoscope. But uh, I think there is a lot of uh, potential there uh, because of the good mechanical properties of the um, um, that is, that is differentiating uh, our technology. Very good. Thanks, Miguel. Hey, so uh, the other thing I, I mentioned something earlier when we talked about uh, some things that customers are looking for today. One, number one, mainly is, uh, is ease of use or ease of operation. Uh, and Jared, how are, how are you addressing that right now in your systems? What's, uh, what's, uh, what have you changed to make that easier for customers to, you know, to, to own and operate and then to, to maybe even to modify as they need to? Uh, well, we've put a lot of work in our user interface, as I started talking about earlier. Uh, basically, you know, we try to give as much power and, and um, information to the user as possible while separating it so that it's not like all thrown at them at the same time, but like there's a main screen that they see for uh, the, the main operation of the system with a start and a stop button and a few indicator lights and, and uh, an image, and that's about it. And then you have other tabs you go to on the UI where you can see the action scripts where everything's uh, programmed. You can see the device configurations. You can see the environment model. You can see you know, the object, all, all these different things. Um, and so kind of separating it, but giving the power to give these different views into different aspects of the system and make changes um, is really how we're, we're doing that for uh, our, our main UI on our, on our own monitor. But then a lot of it, what, what it comes down to with more complicated systems, uh, like the work we do with you guys, where there's a whole line of, of uh, robot cells and you know, other cells that are not bin picking cells that are all controlled in the same um, you know, integration, is we give um, a lot of information. There's a lot of communication between our computer and uh, the PLC and, and you know, your HMI that is, uh, is, is sometimes what the user is mainly interacting with, right? And so lots of communication between our systems so that things can be done directly from the HMI that controls the whole line without ever going and needing to get into the details of our user interface unless you 
need to actually reteach something. Uh, so I think the combination of both of those, just giving a lot of power, uh, streamlined power in our, in our user interface, and uh, then the communication with the larger system. Oh, that's great, Jared. We do like to have the choice of being able to a control from our own HMI or b you know have some a very comprehensive, easily understood uh, user interface for a product that we're integrating. So and that helps us and our customers. So very good, uh, Mikhail. What about yourself? Is Stratasys addressing the ease of use at all? I mean, I, I, I I'm really, I'll be perfectly honest. I've never operated a Stratasys printer. Uh, you know, what what are you doing to address that? Um, so we do a couple of things. Uh, first of all, in terms of software, we're trying to automate the workflow. So imagine that you're getting requests from all kinds of uh, stakeholders in the organization. But some software has to take all of that and kind of nest it on build heads and send it to printing. So you need integration theory or MES system, uh, and you need uh, to be able to um, do those nests and decide which prints goes with which prints on which technology and when. So you need scheduling software. Um, and this is, so the full workflow, I call it like CAD to part, CAD to part automatic uh, uh, software. Uh, so this is one thing that we're working on. Uh, in terms of hardware, so automatic reading, because the resin in this specific technology, DLP, is kind of a pain point, it's messy, uh, you have to, like, it can spill, you know, you have to touch it. So we want to automate the resin feeding, but also we're coming out with a bunch of accessories that will help you deal with that. So when you're carrying the tray, uh, you put it on a special pour jig, and then you can recycle your resin without really touching anything, without like a, without a, like a risking of a spilling anything. Uh, you can recycle and put it back into the into the bottle. Um, we're using a, a special device that uh, extracts that filters the the fumes that are extracted out of the printer. So we want to make sure that. Uh, the users don't have to worry, that the customers don't have to worry about uh, about fumes coming out of the printer. Um, and also in terms of the hardware itself, the printer itself, we want to reduce maintenance. We want to avoid calibration. So we're introducing uh, now a, uh, an advancement that you know the calibration will be done only on, on the manufacturing line, but then the customer himself will not have to, calib to worry about calibration or not have to worry about the degradation, degradation of, the, of the projector. So we will identify that and, and adjust uh, the radiance uh, on, our, on our side. So these are kind of the things on software, on hardware, on accessories that we're trying to, um, to provide just to make, it a, to make a better user experience. Thanks, Mikael. Great answer. And again, I still don't know if I could operate a Stratasys printer, but I think that you guys are addressing everything that your users absolutely need. Fantastic. Uh, Jared, I had a question for you that came in from one of our listeners and viewers. Um, they, uh, I'll just read it verbatim from Scott. Um, I see on the website that Capson software is robot and camera agnostic. Uh, is there any interest to broaden the scope to linear motion system, for example, gantry pick and place using servo motors and drives? It's a great question. It is, yeah. So um, we haven't used, uh, you know, only Gantier robots, but we have uh, put robot arms on linear rails to give them the seventh axis wider reach. Um, that's been quite successful. Um, yeah, there's there's no reason why we couldn't use a pure gantry system. Our software, um, yeah, like you read, is is completely agnostic and very flexible in terms of the kinematic arrangements of. Uh, the different joints and, and degrees of freedom in the system. So uh, that's all quite flexible and configurable. It's just that for the most part, the, you know, the requests we get, the need we see is for uh, these, these regular six degree of freedom robot arms uh, that are not the Cartesian ones, but uh, we can support any of them. That's great. That was actually, that's a question I was going to ask you myself, but someone, someone beat me to it. That's a great question. So thanks for that answer. Um, and that we're starting to get close to uh, running out of time here. So I, you know, I'd like to close out uh, right now. And uh, first of all, thank, thanks, Jared and Mikkel for joining me here today. I know you have, uh, your time is very valuable and appreciate the time you spent here to prepare and also to be here today with us. Um, and also to our listeners as well, to thank you for, for taking time out of your busy days. I know uh, whoever's interested enough to be listening also has a job that, uh, that requires a lot of their attention. So we appreciate your time. Um, I'd like to say thanks to our guests, to our viewers, uh, 
uh, listeners and future listeners, uh, and future listeners, I say, because there's a recording of this conversation that will be available on demand in case you missed anything uh, or want to rewatch or share. Um, that said, uh, you know, feel free to give us a follow on social media. Uh, stay up to date with us. Uh, you know, we are at Calvary Robotics on various platforms. Uh, you can email me directly if you like, uh, or for any questions you might uh, that you might want answered that you uh, that might come up later. Uh, you know, make sure to visit our website calvaryrobotics.com, and to subscribe to Cal TV and the podcast uh, called Advanced Automation uh, for other great industry conversations just like the one today. Uh, thanks again for your time. We really appreciate it, and look forward to seeing seeing you again. Thanks. Mm-hmm.